what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Okay, so uh, tell me about all this stuff you've had me collect. Why don't you show me what you got? This is a Parita Bandari, a journalist based in Toronto. I have not seen a Parita in years. But over the past week, she sent me on a scavenger hunt to find the following. Okay, I have uh, I have rose water. It's in this little thing. Um, I have mm. a candle. And because that candle looks uh-huh. dead, I actually have two <laughs> candles. Nice. And then um, because I couldn't find matches, but I, I knew I had to light the candle, I have this like barbecue lighter that works that does the trick in a pinch yes okay less less romantic but sure (laughs) um and then i of course have the packet of seeds that i collected from you Ah. Mm -hmm. it almost looks like i'm setting up for date night or a diy spa something quiet and relaxing that is not the case okay so should we go through this yeah we'll go through it First off, I have uh, this little bottle. Rose water. So I remember this from when I was young. And occasionally we'd have these gatherings at our home. And there used to be all this preparation for this evening, all this food that was cooked. Mm. And, you know, the living room was spruced up because, of course, guests are coming. And then I was tasked with perfuming the living room. So what I would do is light an incense stick or then maybe spritz some rose water. So... That's the rose water. It's very aromatic, mm. kind of mood setty. Yes. And next, the candle. Well, feel free to light it. All right. Barbecue With lighter. Your barbecue lighter. <laughs> Hold on, I got this. Wow, that is that is the most intense candle lighting I've ever done in my life. <laughs> All right. Okay, so the it smells nice. You have a candle going. What's next? This packet of mm-hmm. cardamom seeds. Okay, so go on, open it. I have to fight a bit to open the tiny packet, use my teeth, which means the second I do get it open. Oh, wow. Oh, these smell amazing. Stronger than the rose water or my spruce scented candle. This warm, intense, familiar, but undefinable perfume hits me. So what are these for? Essentially, these are perfumed cardamom seeds. Typically, you'd have it like after a meal, but also just it's kind of like um. Uh, a mouth freshener. So they aren't like your regular cardamom seeds. First of all, can you describe them to me? What what do they look like to you? They are small and mm-hmm. silver. And mm-hmm. if you were a child in the 90s, they kind of look like nerds, like tiny <laughs> silver nerds, the candy. <laughs> <laughs> they do not taste like nerds, though, if you pop a couple in your mouth. And boom, that smell is now a transportive taste. Oh, wow. They're like, they're sweet and savory. Mm -hmm. And they have that Mm -hmm. zing of like eucalyptus or mint, but don't really taste like either of them. It's just, yeah, it's it's kind of like an indescribable flavor in your mouth. But the thing is, after it, it just feels nice. And it's kind of like this whole idea of 
you know, I don't know, you're going to hear some honeyed words, so have a honeyed tongue. And this is what Aparita has been leading me up to. Honeyed words. We are going to drop in on an Urdu poetry session where the late poet, John Alia, is holding court at a gathering in Pakistan. Now, John used to be known for his Urdu poetry that explored love and pain. And of course, love and pain are central themes to a lot of Urdu poetry. But John's poems were also deeply philosophical and often spoke about the class struggle. I can sense the lyricism, but I mm-hmm. do not understand the language. Yeah, so this is Urdu, and this is a language spoken in South Asia, mainly Pakistan and India. It's a sister language to Hindi, which is what I grew up speaking and still speak. And this poetry session is called a mushaira, where Urdu poets present their work. Mushaira. AC, you're a natural. Thank you. you Thanks. <laughs> Do you know what he's saying here? Yes, if you listen, there's a lot of like repetition going on. So in this particular line, he's saying, you know, our... Um, so the journey that you're on is very long, even if it's for two moments. So have a place to rest your head at. But it's just the way that he's saying it. There's kind of like this uh, a politesse to it. I mean, Urdu is a very, very polite language. And the poetry sessions, you know, take this politeness to an even more elevated level. There's like this whole series of customs and ritual to them. It also seems from that clip that this is a very interactive experience. Like the audience right. is not sitting quietly and listening. Oh yeah, if the audience likes the poem, they will definitely respond with a wah 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 wah. In fact, in this particular case, there's this one guy who keeps on saying, Yar fir se bolo, fir se Which just means, you know, okay, say it again, say it again. And then you hear John repeat the, you know, couplet, oblige this very an- animated listener. And that, a mushaira, held in a family living room, lit with candles and scented with spiced cardamom and rose water, full of people not so much listening to poetry, but reveling in it. That is the kind of scene the Toronto music aficionado Nabil Purvez was immersed in growing up. Those sessions had a profound impact on Nabil, an impact that is still playing out today. I don't think I understood it when I was little, but looking back on it, I I definitely understand that, oh, those things have rubbed off in such a, like, visceral way. Um, and it started really young. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Today, the story of a father, Munir, and son, Nabil, who did not see eye to eye on Munir's most treasured art form, Urdu poetry. It took decades, and the discovery of a long-forgotten 80s synth-pop record with its own wild story. 
for father and son to click. Okay, Aparita will take us back to the beginning. Nabil Pervez was born in Saudi Arabia, and some of his earliest memories are of Mushairas in the family home. I remember being four or five years old, and there was always like these gatherings of people in the house, and there would be music playing, but there would also be a lot of poetry going on because my dad himself writes Urdu poetry. A lot of obviously his friends are then in those circles as well. And I didn't really understand it because when you're that young, like you're just like in your pajamas and looking at all these adults and you're like, what's really going on? You know, it's just a little party. And then eventually like my mom would put us to bed and then their party would continue. We had a big, from my perspective, it was a pretty big living room. There was like a bunch of couches and everyone would start sitting on the couches and there was a dining table that was probably had appetizers and things on it. Sometimes there would be a lot of people. Like it would ga- gr- gradually become maybe like 30 or 40 people, if not more. And a lot of sitting on cushions on the ground. And then there would always be like a focal point. And I, you can think of it as like a guest of honor. Maybe they're a poet or they, there was definitely singers or there would be like... You know, they, my, I remember my parents would call them like um, musical evenings. And in Nabil's house, they already had a resident poet. Okay, so yes, I'm Munir Parvez, and uh, I'm basically a writer and a poet and a social activist in Canada, and I'm, of course, Nabil's father. You could say that Munir is thoroughly versed in Urdu poetry sessions. In the old times of uh, the traditional uh, Mushairas, uh, there will be a candle that will be lit and it will move from person to person. So whoever uh, is given the candle before that person, that will be the turn of that person to recite poetry. There are some social graces to follow. Normally, when you sit there and this 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 goes on, the first of all, you should not ideally be hooting the poet who is reading it, no matter how how bad the poetry is. You'll be very careful. Listen carefully. So, aside from not heckling the poet and paying careful attention, you start a uh, sitting like this or a, or a gathering like this with people of low ranks of poetry and they'll go upwards and sometimes that becomes a reason for a fight among the poets because if your name is called first but you think that you're more distinguished or more ranked than the other poet then the fights will will take place even on the stage sometime and the poor uh, master will be in a lot of trouble. Once on stage the poet can say Mulaiza Farmai Mulaiza Farmai to which an audience can respond Irshad Irshad Ali Janab because it is very, very customary or normal that you do not come, uh, uh, you don't come to the stage or to the mic, start reciting. You have to very respectfully ask the permission uh, to start reciting your poetry, and that way uh, you are granted that permission invariably, and that's how you recite your poetry. To this day, many mushairas follow these customs, a tradition that Munir grew up with in Pakistan. 
His father was a well-regarded poet, philosopher, and professor, and their home was a hub for literary activities. As a teenager himself, Munir started to compose couplets, but poetry rarely pays the bills. Instead, he became a banker. In the late 70s, Munir moved from Pakistan to Saudi Arabia with his wife. It was, it was kind of a sense of loss because for the first few years, I was totally disconnected with the cultural and literature of Pakistan. There's nothing that you could look after or, or find to console yourself, like more spiritually or mentally or in, in a literary manner. But life got busy with two sons born in the early 80s, Nabil and his older brother Yasser. And once the family had settled into a routine they started to organize mehfils, or cultural evenings, the ones that Nabil recalled from his childhood. This was well before the days of emails or WhatsApp invites, so invitations. There were always through word of mouth or through phone calls. You will tell people, your friends, and you will slowly start gathering other people or knowing other people who are inter- interested in literature. And that's how they will come. And uh, uh, you will not even know who is who. You will just know their name. But these parties were definitely for adults. Growing up, Nabil delivered his fair share of eye rolls and exaggerated sighs. And I remember getting dragged to a lot of these things and not knowing what was happening and just not having a good time, like being a bratty kid, just being like, what are we doing here? I don't get it. Like, I don't want to be here. And then like you'd be forced to play with the other kids who were also probably forced by their parents to be there. And then... You know, it was just one of those things where you were, we were off running around doing our own thing while like the adults were enjoying some cultural event that was happening. And you could just hear that in the background while you're playing with all the other kids. Unknown to Nabil, his father was struggling with his own feelings. But in Munir's case, there were feelings of disappointment. The poems he was writing in Urdu, paying careful attention to meter and rhyme, failed to capture his son's interest. I'm writing whatever I'm writing, my children cannot understand. There's a lamentation that I express in one of my poems. So I really feel bad that whatever I'm writing is not going to them. By 1992, the Pervez family had left Saudi Arabia and moved to Ontario. The Urdu poetry and music gatherings continued in their new home. <laughs> In fact, Nabil remembers the legendary poet John Elia coming to his parents' home in Mississauga in 1999. And um, at that time, I didn't really understand the significance of his visit to our home. So do you mind telling me a bit about who he was and how he came to even like stay at our house and spend okay. that time here? I knew John Elia since my childhood because he was the younger brother of a friend of my father. That in the contemporary time, he's a, he, his name is huge, mm. like really touching the classic. So he came for a celebration to Toronto. He went to Vancouver. He went to Calgary during that trip. And uh, but people by the hundreds came around just because his name was so big, even 20 years ago. He's passed away now. Uh, John is important because when I was young and I fell in love with, my, with your mother, I used to recite him John Elias' poetry. <laughs> But while the Pervez family home was becoming a hub in southern Ontario, where lovers of Urdu poetry could immerse themselves in its traditions, Nabil was growing up and developing his own musical tastes. I want to say I was like 12, 11, 12. That's when I really started to like 
kind of break out on my own and start exploring music um, for myself. Prior to that, music that was that I was into was probably just stuff that you know was on TV or stuff that my brother he might have been playing around the house. And around 11 or 12, I developed a more of an interest into it. Started buying like using my allowance money to buy CDs and tapes for myself. Then in high school. I started breakdancing, so that was like brought me really close to hip hop and the rap community in Toronto. And then he started an online radio show with a friend. What up, what up? This is your homeboy, Rec Noble, Chola Man, DJ Soundboy. You are listening to Saving Soul Mix Show. This is the Old Canada episode, and we're going in live. I think it was the summer of 2010. And that was just because we both used to get together and share music with each other. And we were like, wouldn't this be cool if we shared music with the public, like the same way that we do with each other? He launched a music website that he managed until 2018, before moving on to co-host a community radio show. What's up, world? This is Nabil Purvez, and I'll be your host for the first hour of the show. As most of you should be aware, this- well, if you speak to any of my friends, I'm always annoying them with um, links on YouTube and links on, on like Spotify and SoundCloud of just music that I'm into. About a year ago, one of Nabil's friends told him about a record. It was called Disco Se Age. It means Beyond Disco in Urdu. So she was like, this album is being re-released on vinyl. I immediately pre-ordered it because this was back in like October. And... The album was not to be shipped until February, but I'm like, I'm jumping on this. I want to like learn more. And I think there was one song that they had released um, like as a teaser and that was Sari Sari Raat. And so I listened to that. I'm like, oh, I love this. Like, I definitely want to listen to this. So I bought the album and then was like anticipating receiving it. What Nabil couldn't know were the parallels between his own life growing up as part of the Pakistani diaspora and the lives of the creators of the album. Disco Seage is a record that was released by British-Pakistani siblings Nermeen Niazi and Faisal Mosley, recorded in England back in the summer of 1984. For more than 30 years, the brother and sister duo had been living in anonymity, in jobs well out of the public eye. Until one day, decades after the album's release, Nermeen received an unexpected notification. I suddenly got this message on YouTube from Arshia Fatima Haq from Discostan. On the other side of the Atlantic, DJ Arshia Haq stumbled across Disco Se Age at a second-hand record store in New York City. Haq is a multidisciplinary artist who runs an online radio and live event project called Discostan. And she contacted me and gave me her email address and said, could you please contact me? I'm a DJ from uh, Los Angeles. And uh, I have this company called Discostan. Would you please contact me? I'd like to have a chat. And I thought, you know, I've got nothing to lose. Why not? Let's see what she wants. So one thing led to another. And Discose Age was re-released in January 2021. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, the thing is that 37 years later, you're thinking, yeah, well, 
it's a really old product, but apparently people are now saying it's a product of its time and that it's it leads you back to the 80s. I know the 80s are very popular right now because my children tell me that they are. I was singing to bands like Spandau Ballet. Oh gosh, let me think about this. There was so much going on at that time. Some bands whose names I can't even remember, but Depeche Mode, who were considered a bit darker. And Japan. A little later, Pet Shop Boys. Not really before our album, because they, they kind of only released, I think, Western Girls at that point. And I know my brother was quite heavily influenced, not to copy, but just listening to the sounds of, you know, orchestral classical music being played through synth. And, you know, it's just, there's, there's so many, there are so many artists that I was listening to and singing along to. And without realising it, I was probably training my own voice by doing that. Nermeen and her brother Faisal grew up in Birmingham, England in the 80s. The era of big hair, big lapels and big glasses. But the siblings also grew up attending musical evenings filled with Urdu poetry and songs. After all, their parents... Mosleuddin and Nahid Niazi were icons in the Pakistani music industry. In fact, musical history runs deep in Nermeen's family. My family history, especially with music, starts with my grandfather. His name was Sajad Sarar Niazi, and he was the director of Radio India. And then after that, of course, after partition, it was uh, part of Pakistan. And my mother showed an interest in singing. So by the time she was 15, she sang her first song. Then she met my father. Now, meeting my father, it's all quite romantic because she actually met my father in a studio. Nermeen's mother, Nahid Niazi, singing a song from the 1961 Pakistani film, Zamana Kya Kahega. Nermeen's father had come from Bangladesh when it was still part of Pakistan to go into banking, but ended up following his dream of making music. Once married, Nermeen's parents started a children's music show on PTV and made music for Pakistani films. But in 1971, as Bangladesh sought independence... There was a lot of unrest when uh, Bangladesh was being formed. And uh, because they were high profile, there was a danger, actually, that because of mother being Pakistani, father being Bengali, uh, they could have been targeted while, you know, war broke out over there in that region. So they decided to come to the UK. Soon after settling in Birmingham the invitations to attend mehfils or cultural evenings started coming. Those were the same kinds of evenings Nabil's parents used to arrange when he was growing up in Saudi Arabia and Canada. But while Nabil was rolling his eyes at them, for Nermeen in the UK, it was a revelation. One of the most memorable get-togethers or mehfils that I remember 
is a private performance by uh, a gentleman called Asad Amanat Ali Khan. Asad Amanat Ali Khan was a famous singer in Pakistan, known for ghazals, love poems set to music. And he was invited to uh, somebody well known in Birmingham to his home. They made a little stage for him within this house, and it was a large living room. And this performance went on till about four o'clock in the morning. And I remember being there. It was a weekend, so there was no school. I was probably about twelve. Because my parents were there, and because other people were there who really appreciated and understood what he was singing and how he was singing, it made it made him more open, I think, to improvisation. And that improvisation was incredible. My brother has it on cassette somewhere, but I do remember that at the time my mother's eldest sister was staying with us. And when we got home at four o'clock in the morning, they listened to it again on the cassette till about eight in the morning. It was crazy. I mean, obviously I'd gone to bed by this point, but I know that the music moved them. The poetry moved them so much that nobody wanted to go to sleep. Fascinated by the performance, Nermeen was also starting to understand how special the atmosphere at her home was. At home, dad would be composing, mom would be singing, and then musicians, tabla players would come in, you know, sitarist would come in, and, you know, dad would play on the string orchestra, or he would play on the harmonium as well. And you know something, until about the age of, I think, nine or ten, I thought this was normal. I thought that this happened to all kids. It never occurred to me to think that, you know, other kids like me in the diaspora who were from that background, who were Asian, it didn't occur to me that this wasn't their normal life. It also didn't occur to Nermeen or her brother Faisal that they could actually make music themselves. So basically, uh, my dad had something called a string orchestra that he used to keep in the living room downstairs. It was an electronic keyboard that produced sounds of different string instruments. Nermeen remembers it was extremely heavy and usually kept in its black case. And my brother started to tinker with this and experiment on it. And I remember seeing him in the living room and thinking, oh, I wonder what he's doing. Now, with the five-year age gap, we didn't exactly get on brilliantly. We had very different tastes and our interests were very different at 12 and 17, if you can imagine, uh, you know, that kind of age gap. But when she heard him fiddling... Before I knew it, we were collaborating, humming, singing along, making melodies. Just like that, they took on their respective roles. Faisal provided the instrumentals and Nermeen the vocals. And they got some help from their parents. Their father thought they were onto something and... He decided to take my brother and go and speak to a company called Oriental Star Agencies in Birmingham. Apparently they played the music to Mr. Ayub and he actually said that there was a lot of potential in what he was hearing. And the decision was made that we would actually come up with a number of songs and look into uh, recording an album. So I just went with it, you know. I just thought, okay, this is going to be fun. During their six-week summer holiday, they obsessed over this album. Nermeen's mother, the renowned singer, 
helped her come up with some of the words. Because, you know, Urdu is my language, but I would probably still say essentially that English is my first language, even though I do speak Urdu. The album, called Disco Se Age, came out with a little bit of fanfare. There were articles in the local newspaper in Birmingham and TV and stage appearances across Pakistan. I personally don't think that the album was really understood by either side. And I'm going to now say a phrase that I've heard said at least twice. We were, we were too Eastern for the West and we were too Western for the East. The buzz around them between Birmingham and Karachi died out soon. But you know, my brother went off to university and I was still at school. I was under 18. You know, how do you go? How do you perform? What do you do? So I think there came a point where we just thought, okay, well, obviously this didn't work. Uh, You know, time to get on with life. And that's what we both did. And, you know, from time to time, we would have a, you know, we'd have a laugh and talk about Diskoseage. But as it turns out, Nermeen and Faisal are having the last laugh. Their re-released vinyl is getting attention across the globe. In Canada, in February 2021, Nabil finally got his hands on his pre-ordered copy. He popped the vinyl onto his turntable. Intrigued by this record that was originally released at the time his parents were leaving Pakistan for Saudi Arabia, he was excited to share it with them. I was like, oh, I think you guys will be interested to see what this is. And um, we played it and we were just playing it and then they were like really into it and listening to it with me. Nabil was trying to explain who the artist was. As soon as like I said, as soon as my mom heard Niazi, she was like, that's probably Nahid Niazi's daughter. And I was like, okay, that's what's written in the insert. So that makes sense. And then they were like, oh, she was super famous, like, you know, very, very popular singer and big, big pop star in um, in Pakistan when they were younger. And then eventually um, they were like, yeah, they their family moved to England. And then around that time was when my parents were had moved to Saudi. But for my parents, it was more so like, a curiosity of, oh, like, we didn't know that her daughter was making music. Um, so it was like almost like a, like, almost like we were discovering a new artist, a new old artist together. Nabil immediately gravitated towards a boppy tune like Sari Sari Rat, which means all night long. I really love that, those sounds and like, being able to dance to those sounds, it's it's really like just a fun, upbeat kind of music. So then I started hearing like, oh, this is Urdu like disco. Like I understand disco. I understand Urdu. Putting them together just makes sense. It, it appeals to me and it made it a lot more fun. And, and it just made me remember like all those times as a kid when I would maybe hate listening to something like this and, and realizing that I'm so happy that I actually enjoy it now. But he struggled to understand some of the other songs. Because it's still a little bit too, like, abstract, or not abstract, but, like, the, the language is using the, like, really advanced version of, of Urdu that I don't fully understand. But Nabil can always turn to his father, Munir, for help. Just as Nermeen turned to her mother for help, writing the lyrics. <laughs> So can you tell me a little bit about yeah, what those so lyrics so mean? Basically, the lyric is, 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 where are you going by all yourself, mm-hmm. all alone? Where, where are you walking alone in this, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the travel of life? 
uh, you are all going alone. Why are you going alone? And this going alone and loneliness is very common uh, uh, as a, what you call, a pain of Urdu poets or many other poets because they always feel themselves lonely. Mm. And when you fall in love and you make some visions, you're always normally by yourself you're, or, or, or yourself. So she has beautifully sung it in, in, in her stretching rhythms. Uh, she's consistently asking the same. Actually, she's asking to her own heart. Mm. So instead of talking to some person, she's kind of talking to her own heart. Where are you going alone? Are you crazy in this difficult journey of life, which is a lonely journey? If you think about it, the words of that particular song easily relate to people who grow up in the diaspora. Because Chala hai akela kaha. Where are you going? Where are you walking? You know, why are you alone? Where are you going? Chala hai akela kaha. Manzil hai teri kaha. This is a big one for the diaspora. Where is your home? Where do you belong? If you read between the lines, that's what the song is about. Many of the kids, especially of my time, who grew up in the diaspora felt like that because we didn't know which way to turn, what we should accept. Is it okay to do this? Is it okay to do that? Or isn't it, you know? What do we take from the society we live in? And how do we make sure that our parents know that we haven't forgotten our origins, where we come from? So what is our true identity? You know, it's like being lost in a never, never land for a while in your teens because you're really not sure who you are. I'm no longer a teenager. I'm no longer a, like a bratty person. I don't want to just pretend as if like their culture is is not relevant to me because I'm in Canada. I want to like learn about it. I want to know about their memories. I want to be able to like, if not document it in writing or in paper, but like at least document it in my mind and in my heart so that I don't lose that the older I get. I want to be able to have those memories and then be able to like share those stories with the next, my brother is about to have, my brother and his wife are about to have their first child. I would love to be able to share those with them when they think that we're the annoying older like generation, you know? So, so yeah, I think that's really where it's coming from. So finally, I guess, what, what do you make of the fact that this album is bringing this father and son together through Urdu poetry, but also your songs? I was quite surprised when you spoke to me and told me this. I think if anything can bring a father and son together, regardless of whatever it may be, I think it's a brilliant thing. Because I lost my father in 2003 and I miss him so much. And, you know, whether it is, uh, whether it's the cultural divide, I don't know, between the you know father and son. But anything that can bring you together with your family can only be a good thing. But it's amazing that it's happening through this album. But then when I think about it, when, I, my, when my brother and I recorded the album, for us it was about bridging that gap. But we were too advanced at that time, 37 years ago. Nobody understood what we were doing. So I suppose in a kind of a way it's bridging that gap between father and son where they've come to an understanding through this quirky, weird and modern album, but at the same time is using quite traditional Urdu at times, simply because of the way we grew up. I'm not afraid of the dark.
That doc was produced by Aparita Bandari. It was edited by Allison Cook. On our website, you can see the re-released album with the original 1984 photo of Nermeen on the cover with full, classic 80s hair. Speaking of classic 80s, the songs you heard in the doc that inspired Nermeen and her brother were True by Spandau Ballet on Chrysalis Records, People Are People by Depeche Mode on Mute, Gentlemen Take Polaroids by Japan on Virgin Records, and West End Girls by the Pet Shop Boys on Bobcat. You also heard Sari Sari Rat and Chalahea Kela from the album Disco Seage by Nermeen Niazi and Faisal Mosley. That album has just been re-released on Disco Stan. All right, we will be back in a second with a battle for the ages between a man and his beard. Sit tight. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretab. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange... You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had another show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Dog Project. Tej Swatch has always admired his father, his intelligence, his kindness, his work ethic, and his beard. My father had a long beard. He had never cut it ever in his life. And he had a way of taking it, brushing it out, and then tying a little bun and putting it under his chin before he went off to work. He was just this splendid Sikh man who had this very nice turban and he had this nice fully groomed beard that didn't look cut. It was just something that was totally under control. And I remember thinking that that was, that's an example of what a beard should look like. My beard never looked like that. It was a struggle. It was a, can, is struggle beard a term? For you, Tej, yes, it is. Struggle beard is definitely a term. Grooming your beard is definitely something that needs to be done, and it's something that people talk about all the time, and how they groom the beard, and how they make it look however they make it look. Um, what, what one is trying to do is avoid the giant steel wool puff wall that uh, would happen if you did nothing. <laughs> the desire is to make it look flat and neat and like not a hair out of place, that sort of thing, right? Just completely like a shell almost. I'm Tej, uh, I'm a Sikh, and I've worn a beard for 27 years. You don't hide your faith. You, If you're a Sikh, there's certain things expected of you, there's certain things you should do or you, how you should live your life, and everyone should know who you are and what you are. The five Ks are part of that. Um, it's sort of this these five symbols that all kind of work together. Uh, the kara, which is the steel bangle, a comb, uh, kashada, which is clean undergarments, um, kirpan, which is the dagger that everyone knows about, and kes. Uh, kes just means unshorn hair or longer hair. So the beard is part of that fifth K. And I think it's because my dad didn't have as coarse hair as I do, and his hair was a little bit more 
more manageable or whatever the case might be, but I never had a beard that looked like his. I was late 14, 15, I started getting a beard, a really pathetic beard. It was just this patchy, horrible thing that just sort of started sprouting. I was feeling pressured to make it look like, not look so horrible, <laughs> to make it look straight and pasted down. That was the pressure. Certainly from my peers or from my family, it was like, don't look awful. Just try to do something so it doesn't look so noticeable and crazy and all the rest of it. So just not a, like a steel wool. <laughs> Which is really kind of funny when you think about it, because the whole reason to have the beard as a Sikh is to be noticeable. But then you'd have people saying to you, oh, you know, take care of that, clean that up, make it look straight, uh, but don't cut it. When it got too long and it got too unruly, uh, we had to figure out, or I had to figure out how to make it less unruly. Uh, and the first sort of product I remember putting in was just like the stiffest, most horrible hair gel you could find. Like the stuff that punks would use to like spike up their hair. That's what we would use to like, you take it and then you just rub it into your beard and you brush it down. And it took me like a month or two to figure out you're supposed to use a hair dryer to stiffen it out. Um, so yeah, it was just the most stickiest, horrible hair gel. When the beard got really long, so I would say that was about maybe second year university, I started going out on interviews, wanting to meet women, wanting to do all these sort of things, and just having this unkempt beard was not something that was going to fly. So that's when a morning routine started to come in. So I would wake up, take a shower, uh, and then you would have a special shampoo for your beard, the harshest shampoo I could find, because I would do anything to soften my beard, just anything. Then I'd do shampoo it twice. I even tried conditioner for a bit, but that made it worse. It made it slippery and ugh, it was awful. Then you would get out, you'd dry it, but you wouldn't dry it too much because you needed a bit of wetness in it because that's how the gel would work better. So you'd take the gel and do the one side and you'd straighten it out and then you'd dry it and do the other side and then you'd straighten that out and you'd dry it and then you'd do your mustache. You would paste it down. Paste on the beard, hold it down. Paste it down. <laughs> Sikh men, when they're growing up, they have the best hair dryers because they need industrial strength hair dryers to just hold it down. So the whole point was to paste on the beard and you'd have this fringe left on the bottom of your beard and you would roll that up into like a braid almost. You have the rubber band tighten the rubber band onto your, and it would just, oh my God, it would pull all the hair. Tighten it, and then you'd make this braid, and you'd shove it back under your beard. It just kind of folded in on itself, and it would just stay there. You would have this thing called a dhati, and a dhati was just this long ribbon of cloth that would cover the entire beard, and you would tie it uh, on the, sort of the top of your head. You look like an old cartoon character with a toothache, and, and then you had to leave it there for like, oh gosh, 30 minutes. Uh, once that was done, then you would carefully peel it off. You take some hairspray. The product was cold. <laughs> you're spraying hairspray near your nose, and you're like, am I shellacking my lungs? What am I doing? You'd spray it on there, and then you dry that so you have a final finish. Every day I did that. For almost 20 years, I would say. The morning routine was so heartbreaking <laughs> at times. Like, you would get up, and you would do this thing, 
it was stressful because you're trying to get to work or you're trying to get to wherever you got to go and you would do it and sometimes it wouldn't come out and you would just be so upset and it was just stressful and awful and I was not a good person doing it and plus it was painful when you do the bun it's so tight you pull out hair and I was starting to lose patches of hair under my chin you would pull at it and I was having bare skin there I'm like this doesn't feel good and it was painful throughout the day as well because once <laughs> the thing with a beard once you've actually got it set and you got the hairspray on and it's slacked and you're out for the day it's just a time bomb at that point it's just like well at what point um, is it gonna split at what time is it just gonna like a little strand is gonna come out and you know, one of your cousins is gonna call you a terrible name and like uh, be like oh that's a barbed wire bandit again or like when you're you're afraid to talk like eat uh, certain things because if you open your mouth too much the beard will split and it'll look terrible and all these things and it would just get worse and worse and like it's just something I th- was occupying my mind throughout the day and I didn't like it and I didn't like having that feeling and then I sat down and I thought about it I'm like well if it's an article in my faith what is the point of that article what am I trying to say and I concluded that it's not it's not how long you keep your beard, it's that you keep a beard. So I was like, I, I don't want to do this. For my own mental health, for my own physical, I don't like having a painful face anymore. And I went and got my beard trimmed. In terms of length, I would say it was about six, seven inches long, the longest strands. And then when I got it trimmed, I would say it went to like one and a half, two inches, something like that. In terms of like whether it's adherent to the faith, uh, I got a little bit from my parents. Whenever they do see me, he's like, okay, so you now you're going to start keeping your beard again, right? You're going to keep it long, right? You're going to do that. You're going to do that. And I just kind of demure. I don't say anything. I don't want to let them hope, as it were. But mostly, it was more as an aesthetic sort of comment from cousins and peers and that sort of thing. For like, oh, you finally, you finally did it. And, oh, it looks okay now. People still identify me as a Sikh. There's no doubt about that. In a funny way, it looks more natural, and I think I look more relaxed because of it. From my physical well-being, from the mental well-being, from like putting that much chemical in my face every day, um, I don't think I would ever go back. The feeling I have now for it, it's yeah, it just feels natural, and it's just who I am. Tej Swatch. His story was produced by Tanera McLean and Allison Cook. It was originally broadcast back in 2018. And since then, Tej has stuck to his word. He hasn't gone back. He still wears a beard, but these days, it's struggle-free. Most of the time. We've got before and after pictures of his beard in all its quaffed glory. You can see those at cbc.ca slash docproject. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Tanara McLean, Sherry Okeke, Joan Weber, and me. Althea Manassan is our digital producer, and our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.